Well, how are we doing, church? You ready for this? All right, good. If you got your Bible, and I hope you do, you open it up to the middle of the Bible, you'll be somewhere close to the Song of Solomon. That's where we are. We are in week two of this 10-week series on uh, called The Song of Solomon, a book in the Bible about your love life. And uh, last week, we talked to the men about how to be a godly man. And uh, if you remember last week in the notes, I had 15 points that I put in the notes for the men. Uh, so if you'll open up your notes, women, you'll see that I put zero because uh, if I would have written out the points, you'd have corrected them for me anyway. And so um, you just write down whatever the Spirit leads you to write down. That's good. And when I've taught this before, some of you have asked, am I going to do the, the, four, the four H's of what it means to be a godly woman? And I'm not. Well, they'll be in there, but there's more than that. Because the last time I taught this, I taught this to men. So we had to boil it down and make it all start with the same letter because, you know, they're big dumb animals. So they had to, they'll be able to remember it. But for you, there's going to be a lot more to it, okay? So grab your pen and... and and then also, one of the things I've just got to let you know that uh, this could be a little intimidating, right? Trying to teach you how to be a godly woman because I've never been a woman. So, some of you might think, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me just say, you're absolutely right. I don't know what I'm talking about. I've never been a woman. So, as I'm preaching and teaching, if you think, well, of course he would say that. He's a man. Right. So, eat the fish, spit out the bones, let the Spirit does what he does, okay? That's how, that's how we're going to do this. Um, but I will say this, I, I, would just, I would just ask you to have an open heart and to hear this really from two perspectives. One, um, if I'm going to be your pastor, there, there will be a day that I stand before Almighty God and I have to give an account for you. And I think from my perspective, it looks like it, it's a really tough time to be a woman, especially when this world is trying to define what that looks like for you. On the one hand, you're told, really, just be a man in a skirt. And then sometimes you're told, actually, treat your body like a commodity. Just use it up to get what you can get out of this world. And so to push back the darkness in what the world is telling you, um, we're going to dig into the manual that is the Word of God. And so I think what I want you to just hear is this, that I'm your brother, I'm your pastor, and that I love you dearly and deeply. And so if any of this can be helpful, then please hear it with those ears. And, and some of the places where you think, well, God, he just sounds like a dude. Well, guess what? That's what I am. So uh, now the one thing I do have in my favor is I've been researching this sermon for 14 years, okay? I've been actually living with a godly woman for the last 14 years of my life. That's how long I've been married. I met Gretchen 16 years ago. We met in the gym, um, which is great. I was, that used to be really important to me, not nearly as important anymore, obviously, but I still try a little bit. But I was working out, bench pressing real heavy, trying to impress everybody, and I'm in the gym, and I see this little blonde ponytail. Gretchen used to have really blonde hair. And I just see this little blonde ponytail come bebopping through the gym with some really tight shorts on, and I felt like God spoke to me. And um, <laughs> so I was attracted to her, literally attracted, not just like, wow, but I just walked up to her, and I didn't really have a plan or a game or any of that. No, I just, there I was. And she's very introverted. And so when I cross into her little personal space, and she has a very large bubble of, of what becomes her personal space, and I just kind of walked up kind of too close, and she looked at me like, I think she actually said, can I help you? And so, um, you know, I strolled over all big like this because girls really don't care at all. But I was a 20-something-year-old single idiot, so I didn't know. And so I thought she'd be really impressed by my muscles, but she wasn't. And then I said in a very deep voice, <clears throat> can I get a spot? That's what I said. That was it. That was the opening line to what would be the rest of my life. Now, you can laugh all you want to, but platow, all right? <laughs> Two beautiful children, and 14 years later, here we are. 
And so I talked to her and, and, um, and, and was pretty, pretty captivated by her. And so uh, came back the next day to the gym and she wasn't there. It turns out that wasn't her regular workout time. So I figured out what kind of car she drove and, um, and packed the gym bag and kept it in the backseat of my truck. And with just two or three times a day, I'd drive by the gym. And if I'd see a Honda Accord, then God told me to work out. Now, listen. <laughs> and this was back when we actually had to legitimately stalk people. You understand? It wasn't like Facebook where you just wait till somebody checks in and then you can stalk them. This was legitimately creeper, all right? That was me. And so I met her in the gym. We hung out, eventually got married. I'll tell you more about that as we go. But all of this sermon, what I've done, after I wrote it, I, I ran it by Gretchen. So it is G approved, okay? And so at least I have that level of confidence. But outside of that, I'm pretty intimidated to try to tell you how to be a godly woman. But I'm like the mailman. I didn't write the mail. I just deliver it, all right? So I pray that you will have an open heart. So let's, let's pick it up in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon. So again, like we talked about last week, this is love songs between the two. It's not necessarily in chronological order. Um, I try to teach it that way, generally speaking, so you can have a grasp of the entire book. But these are love songs between Solomon and his wife. And uh, so sometimes it kind of gets out of order. So basically, a good rule of thumb is if they are touching, they're married. If they're not touching, they're not married yet. And even today in the sermon, I'm going to kind of um, oscillate between uh, married and single folks. So she starts in verse 2. She kicks the whole thing off with one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Godly women. Listen, we're going to talk about how to be a godly woman. Now, is the husband the head? Yes and amen. Is he the leader? Absolutely. But women, you will set the tone in your home, period. You will set the temperature in your relationship. General Patton couldn't lead a woman that doesn't want to be led. And so what she does is she encourages him to lead. She encourages him to lead. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That means that she doesn't just sit back and say, well, you better lead, but she is encouraging. And one of the things you're going to see throughout the book, Song of Solomon, is her words to him are always encouraging. She creates this environment where he can be who God has created him to be. Now, the opposite of encouraging is nagging. And that's one way to go about it, too. Husbands, let me just give you a little word of advice here. Okay, ready? First of all, next Sunday is Mother's Day. You're welcome. All right? And, I don't, and don't even, don't be dumb to go, she ain't my mama, oh my goodness, just, all right? Um, and then secondly, Peter says, husbands, live with your wives as unto knowledge. It literally means become a student of her. So what, fellas, you ought to do is pay attention right now, and if she ever moves during the sermon, you know, like white people, amen, and if I say something, she's like, mm, then you might need to go, all right, I got to work on that one, all right? All right, but girls, even though they're supposed to lead and all of that, um, you, you get to set the tone in your home, and you can encourage him to be the man that God has created him to be, or you can nag him about not being the man that he is. The Bible talks pretty specifically about nagging. Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen through 16 says this, a nagging or quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Drip, drip, drip. Do you know that there are some countries that use that kind of dripping to torture soldiers into coming clean with national security secrets? Drip, drip, drip. 
And then it says to restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. In other words, a woman that doesn't want to be led can't be led. I don't care who you are. It'd be like stopping the wind. I don't care how great a leader the man is. If he gets out and does everything he's supposed to do, the wind just blows right by him. And so a godly woman doesn't nag. And nagging is like torture is what he's saying. Or Proverbs 21.9, better to live on a corner of a roof than to share a house with a nagging or quarrelsome wife. You know what that means? That means at some point, some man, when he gets nagged to the point, he's like, all right, I've had enough. Where's my camping equipment? And he gets his tent and his backpack, and he climbs up on the corner of the roof, and he's like, finally, me and my Coleman stove can just sit here under the stars and get a little bit of peace. In other words, it will drive him away. It will never draw him to you. Or my favorite one is this, better to live in a desert than with a nagging and ill-tempered wife. Now, think about the things that happened in the desert. Where did the children of Israel wander around for 40 years lost in the desert? Or how about Jesus? When he was in the desert, who did he run into? The devil. So when you're nagging your husband, guess what? Your husband goes, this reminds me of a Bible story (laughs) where the devil was trying to tempt Jesus. Okay, so there's a couple ways you can go about it. She's going to, for the most part, encourage her man and, and, and not be a nag. Now, here's the thing. None of you think you nag. You're just thinking, I'm just trying to help. It's because you're a daughter of Eve. You were created to be the helpmate. But when the twist happens, when the fall happens, what you think is helping, he sees as disrespect. What you think is helping, he sees as you trying to tell him what to do. And it's drip, drip, drip. Also, Again, she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So when you get married, it's not offense and defense, okay? You don't slide into, he's trying to score and you're trying to prevent scoring. Actually, it's a touchdown for everybody. You'll see it get unpacked here. Verse three, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the virgins love you. She continuously builds him up with her words. Every time you correct your husband, especially in public, you are tearing him down. You've been around women that have done this before, right? The guy's trying to tell a story. It was 4th of July, two years ago, we were at the beach. And you go, actually, honey, it was three years ago, we were at the lake, it was Memorial Day. And then he's like, well, I guess I'm dumb as a rock, I might as well shut up. Because essentially what you've told him is you're not doing this right, let me show you how to do this better. And what he wants more than anything, this will be the theme. And, and he'll be too cowardly to say amen right now. But what your husband wants more than anything else is to be respected. Hey. There you go. <laughs> you see, he's been created with this fundamental question deep, deep in his soul, do I have what it takes? And, and God put you as the loudest voice in his life to say, you have what it takes. And so when you nag him or when you correct him, when you do that thing, I know you think you're helping, but what he, he sees it as as disrespect and what he wants more than, even more than being loved, he wants to be respected. A guy told me, this is awful. I probably shouldn't even say it, but whatever. He says, you want to know who loves you more? Take your wife and your dog, put them in the trunk of your car, drive around town for an hour, open the trunk and see who's happier to see you. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Hey. All right. So, so again, grandma loves you. The dog loves you. Everybody loves you. But what your husband really wants more than anything is to be respected. And what she's going to do is she's going to build him up. She's going to encourage him. She's going she's to um, respect him in the way that she speaks to him. And so what she says about him is that your name is oil poured out. A godly woman is attracted to a man of character. 
And literally what, it me- what this means here, that the name is, is oil poured out, the way that you would get oil from an olive grove is you would press the olive and then that extra virgin olive oil comes out in the first pressing. And so what she's saying is, when my man is pressed under tough circumstances, what comes out is character. His name is purified oil. A godly woman is attracted not, not, just, not to money, not to status, not to, not to title, but, but she's attracted to a man of character. Now, some of you, especially at, at the Church of 1122, there are a lot of you that got married before you met Jesus, and now you're saying, well, I'm kind of married to a guy, and his name is not oil poured out. He has not surrendered his life to Jesus. And if you are a Christian wife, and you are here, and your husband's like playing golf or fishing right now, um, he, let me just give you a word of advice. The more you attend this church, the, the bigger fan of this church your husband should become. So instead of going home and nagging him about what he's not doing, why don't you go home and try to be the wife that he dreamed of, that you would serve him and respect him and love him. And instead of nagging him about playing golf, what if you got your, his golf clubs ready on your way to church? Because you know what will begin to happen? I, I've never met the man that got nagged into the kingdom of heaven. But what might begin to happen is he begins to think, wow, the more you go to that church, the more I benefit as your husband. Now, who told you to do that? And when you go, my pastor did, he's going to say, I got to meet this man. You understand? And then he might show up. So, godly women are attracted to men of character. Verse 4, she says, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Um, She allows him to lead. Listen, submission is an invitation to lead. In Ephesians chapter 5, there's this, kind of famous, controversial verse where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, the verse above that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. A good marriage is a good friendship of mutual submission. It's, it's the husband and the wife out of reverence for Christ trying to outdo one another in love and honor. And then it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, it doesn't say women submit to, to men, but just wives, submit to your own husbands. So, start a company, be CEO, run for president. I would vote for you right now, Okay. If, if you ran for president. But wives, submit to your own husband. Submission is an invitation to lead. Godly women lay down the reins of their home, encouraging their husbands to pick up the reins and lead. Your husband was built to lead. Every man in here was built to lead. That's how God designed us. He'll be a good one or he'll be a bad one, but he is gonna be the head and Even more important than getting that thing right that you think is so important, a game changer for your relationship will be if he understands that you think he has what it takes to lead. And that means, and this has nothing to do with who's smarter. You're obviously smarter. I'm sure you're more organized. I understand. And you think, oh, my house will fall apart if I leave it up to him. It would be more important for you to lay down the reins and let him lead than it would be for the kids to get to school on time or the bit, whatever you think it is. It's worth the late payment to JEA. Whatever the detail is that you're freaking out over, what she says is, draw me after you. Like she's inviting him to lead. Submission is an invitation to lead. It goes on to say in the second half of verse 4, We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. A godly woman has godly friends. A godly woman has godly friends. 
Women of the church of 1122, do your friends help you love, honor, respect your husband and God? Or is it difficult to do it in that circumstance? I mean, every time you get around your friends, is it all about gossip? And I don't care if you Christianize and call it prayer requests, but if you're talking about people instead of to them, that's gossip. Or are they building you up and helping you be the godly woman that God created you to be? My wife has some very good friends here in our church, and I love it when they spend time together. One of my favorite things to hear is Gretchen will say, hey, the girls want to do a girls trip to Orlando. And I go, I will fund the whole thing. Because I don't know exactly what they do on these trips, and I don't really care to know, but I just know this. When Gretchen gets back, it's like she's been to wife boot camp or something. It's like she wants to be that godly wife. And so all the husbands, when our wives are like, all right, we're heading back. Dude, we're high-fiving each other because we, we know what comes home. So what about you? Do you have godly friends? And, and women, you're some of the worst at making friends. I mean, you just really are. If a guy needs a friend, he'll go, hey, you want to play golf? I don't like golf. Want to fish? I don't like to fish. You want to hunt? There we go. Ding, ding, ding. We've got a winner. We can be friends now. Some of you need to get over yourself and just pursue godly friendships. It's this easy. You can walk in the Connect Center and you can say, I, I need to make some Christian friends. And there's people there that will help you do that. Godly women have godly friends. Husbands, you want your wives to have godly friends. You want your wife hanging out with other godly women that, that aren't just sitting in circles and tearing down their husbands like it's a sport. Because think about it. Name one husband uh, on a sitcom that's the hero. Now, everybody loves Raymond, but he's an idiot, right? Because he can't ever get anything right. You want women that are learning how to be an encouragement to you. Godly women have godly friends. Now, she speaks in verse 5. She says, I'm very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. All right, this is a big one. That a godly woman is humble. A godly woman is humble. She doesn't think very highly of her outward appearance. Now, she's confident. She says that she's dark but lovely. And let me unpack what I'm talking why she says this. You see, during this time, the ultimate form of beauty would have been pale skin. In fact, the standard of beauty then is kind of the opposite of the standard of beauty now. The standard of beauty then was very pale skin and a little plump, which means you were indoors and you didn't have to work and you had plenty of food to eat and it showed. Amen? Now, the standard of beauty today is kind of the opposite. It looks like you've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, like real tan and, you know, all sucked up, but it's just kind of different. And so what she's saying is um, she had to work in the vineyard, and so she's got a farmer's tan. She's a redneck. That's what she's saying. Hey, I got a farmer's tan. My neck's kind of red. And while all the other girls could get manicures and pedicures and take care of their skin, I had to work hard. Therefore, I can't. And so um, she's humble about her appearance. Her outward appearance is not the most important thing in the world. Now, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And so she's, she, she doesn't, you know, she's not a prima donna. He goes on to say, my mother's sons, she's saying, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Another huge, huge, huge aspect of a godly woman is this, that a godly woman is hardworking. She's hardworking. Guys, if you're dating a girl and she is a prima donna, I would say run like the wind blows. If she expects one day for y'all to get married and you to buy her a Jeep that's nicer than her Barbie's Jeep and you're 23 years old, then you will never be able to satisfy her. 
Because this girl says, while all the other girls were just kind of, you know, being pampered up in the palace, I had to work the vineyards. She was in her overall. She has a farmer's stand. She's got some guns, and she's a little bit embarrassed by it. But a godly woman is hard working. She also knows how to submit to authority. Her dad has never mentioned this in, in this entire book. She's got a single mom raising some kids. So the authority in her life are her brothers. And what she thought was punishment early turns out to be a good thing in her life. But she was submitted to the authority in her life. Fellas, I'll tell you this too. If you're dating a girl and she does not know how to submit to the authority in her life, then you better run like the wind blows. I'm telling you. And if she has not submitted her life to the lordship of Christ... If she hasn't submitted her life to the perfect leader and you want to marry her, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be in trouble because if she can't submit to the perfect leader, what do you think is going to happen when she gets up under your leadership? It's going to be problematic, okay? Because your leadership is nothing compared to the perfect leadership of Jesus Christ. And so she is hard working. Now, one of the questions that I'll get often, not too often, but people ask me, all right, should... um, should, should a Christian woman who's married with kids, should she work? Should she, like, should she work? And my answer would be this. Every mom I know works. Works really, really hard. Some of them get paid. Some of them don't get paid. But they all work like crazy. I mean, it's like one of the hardest jobs ever, ever, ever. When Gretchen is out of town and I'm responsible to do her part and my part, first of all, how in the heck? I don't know how she keeps them bathed and alive and fed and the house clean. I just tell her, you get to choose one or the other, all right? We either keep the children alive or we can clean the house, but we can't, I can't do both. I don't know how you do it. I try hard to. I'm like, well, whatever. Can't do it. So every mama works. Every mama works. Um, there's a doctrine called uh, the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. And what that means is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me, he, he was the great high priest the one and only go-between between God's people and God himself, and that you have the same Holy Spirit that I have. So you don't have to get permission from me to do anything, right? That you go to God on your own, and, and the Holy Spirit will speak to you. So the, the, the overarching theme here in the question, should, should moms work, is you should be who God has created you to be. And just now in me and my house and our family, we have decided that that Gretchen's not going to have a job outside of the home, except she leads worship here all the time. She's leading in the sanctuary right now, but that she's going to help me here at the church. And so that's how we've decided to do it. But in the Bible, there's some women that have jobs, Lydia, Phoebe, the the, um, Proverbs 31 woman, that they all have like full-time outside the home jobs. And then you've also got verses like in um, Titus chapter 2 that said uh, women should love their husbands and raise their children and be homeward focused. And so those are all true, yes and amen. So the, the key thing here is, is you need to lean into God and ask him what you're supposed to do with your life. And then be obedient to God's call on your life. Women, there are some of you here and you're pursuing the things of this world instead of God's call in your life and what's best for your family. And there are some of you that need to go home. That you need to say, I'm gonna do with less for a season so that I can be at home more. Now that's not for everybody. There are some of you, some of you women, if you were honest, you would need to go from full-time to part-time for the sake of your husband, for the sake of your family, and to be obedient to what God's called you to do. And there are some of you here, and you're at home, and for the sake of your dear children, you should probably go to work. They would probably do better that way if that's God's call in your life. But fundamentally, godly women are hard workers. We don't need any real housewives of the church of 1122. We need real godly wives. 
all right? And so here at our church, we have lots and lots of stay-at-home moms whose kids are in school during the day, and so they volunteer their time here at our church during the week. We couldn't function without them. So they all work. They just, you know, we don't pay those folks, but the retirement plan is really, really amazing. All right, so (laughs) verse 7, she says, Tell me, you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. All right, let me talk about this for a second, Um, because a lot of single girls, you've bought into this this myth or this lie. Um, Is it okay for a godly woman to be attracted to a godly man and position herself to be pursued by him? Yes and amen. And what I hear, I hear a lot of single girls say, um, well, you know, I don't don't need a man, I don't want a man, and, and maybe even feel guilty for wanting to be married or wanting to be in a relationship. And let me just tell you, God has placed that desire in there and it is a good and godly gift. And so I hear girls pray, dear God, you are more than enough. All I need is you. I don't even need a man. I'm just going to seek you, and, 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 and I'm content, and you, you alone. Amen. All right, I prayed it. Where is he? Because you think until you're content in the Lord, then God's not going to give you a man. Look, that desire to date a, a guy is a good thing. Now, you can take a good thing, make it a God thing, it becomes a bad thing, so you got to keep an eye on it. Or you'll say some stupid stuff like, well, I'm not dating anybody right now. I'm just dating Jesus. Jesus is my boyfriend. Unless some other boy asks me out and I'm breaking up with Jesus, I'm going to go out with him. Okay, that's just silliness. It's silliness. What she does is she's attracted to this godly man, and she says, hey, where are you going to be with your flocks later? Because i got some goats that need to eat, and I'm going to make sure I'm kind of in the same area. So, girls, that means that if you're at church today, and, and you peered through the new gen lobby, and you see this young, single, you know, stag in there, that's what the Bible calls a stud, and you feel like, I think the Holy Spirit is calling me to volunteer in the new gen ministry. Yes and amen. It's biblical. That's exactly what you do. You don't apologize for it. You just position yourself to be pursued. So she says, so where are you going to be at lunchtime? But then she goes on to say this. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? The third thing, this, this is a big one. That a godly woman is holy. You see, during this time, the women that would veil themselves and hang out with the companions were prostitutes. And what she's saying is, I'm not going to dress like a prostitute, and I'm not going to prostitute myself to try to get you. I'm not going to lower my standards to try to get a man. That's what she's saying, that the holiness before God is more important than getting a date. And I just think, I mean, I have seen just, just a lowering of the moral standards, girls. Now, last week we said that the guy should be setting the pace for the sexual standard, but you do not abdicate your responsibility. You determine how people treat you. And you can't lower your standards to get a man. You can't. And the problem is, this happens all the time, if um, you're going to keep that dude with what you caught him with. And so if you try to keep, if you try to catch him with this, then you're going to have to try to keep him with that. And it's like, it's like icing on a cake. Oh, it's super sweet. Cake is better with icing. But if you try to sustain yourself on icing, you will shrivel up and die. And when the relationship goes physical first and you lower your moral standards to try to get a guy, you think you're gaining intimacy and actually you're killing it. And the physical will never be able to sustain that relationship. Because even if you do get married, guess what? The best you're ever going to look is on the day you get married. 
It's all downhill from there. I don't care who you are in the room. That's just what it is. You, you diet and you work out and you try to get in that expensive dress and you got a pit crew of people that work for eight hours on a Saturday to get you ready for that moment where here comes the bride and you look amazing, you really do. And then not only do you not have eight hours to get ready every day, but also just time and gravity are not our friends. I am personally experiencing this in my own body. I turned 40 this year and there are some things happening that I didn't see coming, Okay. I catch angles in the mirror, and I go, oh, what in the world is happening back there? It's awful, all right? <laughs> or I woke up this morning, and my, I'm sore. Gretchen said, what'd you do? I slept. That's what I did. Apparently, somewhere in the middle of the night, going from here to here requires me to take Advil this morning, okay? So, when I go fishing, you know what I catch? I catch what I'm fishing for. Girls, you're going to catch what you're fishing for. If you troll with your bodies, you're going to catch body snatchers, and you're going to be the kind of people that say, all men are jerks. No, all the, men you've been, all the men you've been going out with are jerks. And so when you don't lower your standards, then you get a different kind of guy, and that's what she does. She says, I'm not dropping my standards. I'm not going to be like one who veils herself. And then he responds. He says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with string of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Engedi. All right. Let me unpack this. It starts to get really good now. Last week, we taught, I told you what Engedi was, that the henna blossom was this little pretty flower out in the desert, and Engedi was an oasis in the middle of the desert. Now, husbands, I told you to be providing some Engedi for your wives. Now I'm going to tell them how to provide some Engedi for you, but if you didn't do your job last week, don't be talking about Engedi this week, all right? If you didn't do your part, don't be like, baby, how about some Engedi? She's going to say, Engedi on out of here, okay, if you didn't do your part, so... <laughs> But wives, are you providing Engedi for your husband? Are you providing an oasis of this, in this desert for your husband? Let me ask it this way. What does he come home to? Does he come home to peace and rest? Or does he come home to nagging and a list? Drip, drip, drip. What does he come home to? Because what she's saying is that she provides Engedi for her husband. Let me tell you what I get. I mean, I get this probably at least once a month. I get some really strong Christian evangelical wife, fresh out of a Bethmore Bible study, that calls me up and says, Pastor, I need your help. I go, okay, how can I help? Well, my husband's working too much. Can you call him up and tell him that he needs to quit working so much and value me and get home? And I go, okay, well, have you told him? Yeah, I told him. I called him. I left him a voicemail. I sent him a text. I put it on his Facebook. I tweeted it, and I'm going to get one of those airplanes with the banner behind it that says, come on, dead, all right? I've communicated it to him. And I go, okay, okay, well, well, you're right, but, but you can either be right or you can be married. Those are your two options, all right? There's a lot of people that were right and they're not married anymore, amen? Being, being married has nothing to do with being right. And so when I'm talking to the husbands, I did it last week, we talked about this, right, fellas? Love your wife like Christ loved the church. You should value her above everything else, all right? But, but girls, I'm talking to you this week. You see, your, your man is gonna lead something. He's gonna lead where he feels competent to lead, He's going to lead where he feels competent to lead. 
And so what your job is, is to make him feel competent to lead at home. And when you call and text and, and drip, 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 come home, come home, come home from work and be home on time and you said 5.30, but now it's 6, let me just tell you what you're doing. You see, if he's good at all at his job, then they make him feel competent to lead at work. I mean, he gets a paycheck. They're like, good job, Mr. Johnson. Come back next week and here's money for how well you've been leading. He has a title. I mean, it's right there on his name tag, Ted, assistant manager. People report to him. He says, do this, and people scurry around and do what he says. He has annual reviews where on paper they say, here's five things that you're doing really well, that he feels competent to lead there. They call him sir. They do what he says. He's got an office. And then what you're, if you nag him, what you'll do is you're asking him to leave an environment where you feel competent to lead, and I want you to come home to an environment where I've already let you know by Facebook and Twitter and text that you are incompetent. You've already jacked it up, and you're not even here yet. Now, should he come home? Yes and amen, all right? But the problem is, is he'd rather sleep on the corner of a roof than to come home to that. What your job is, is to create in Getty when he gets home. And so one of the great things you could do if you want to be a godly wife is, is when you're going to lunch today, you could just ask your husband, hey, what's Engedi look like for you? I mean, old school, traditional, you know, it's like a hot meal. For Church of 1122, it's probably a cold beverage. That's probably more in who we are as a church. Um, and if you need a little hint, hey, I'm going I'm to help you out here. Look at the verse above that. Here's Engedi. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my... Just don't be merely hearers of the word. But do what it says, that you are to provide, I mean, somewhere like an oasis. And now, what will happen is if you do that, you'll get his heart at home and he'll start leading at home. You'll actually get more of your honey-do list done this way than you will with the drip, drip, drip. That's how God wired us. I can see why a happy hour was invented. Because some guys get off work and be like, I ain't going there yet. All right, I'm going to find my henna blossom over here and then... Head home. You don't want to do that. You want your invitation home to be more enticing than anywhere else. And you girls are smart, and, and you can do that. Verse 15, this is how he responds. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Now, when I've taught this in regards to all the H's, I said that a, that a godly woman was humble, hardworking, holy, and hot. Now, the reason I said hot is because I was teaching dudes, and they could remember the word, and it all started with H, and, you know, they're just big, dumb animals. So, girls, wives, um, we are wired to be visual. We just are. Attraction is important to us. Give it your best effort, all right? So, married girls, just give it your best effort. That's all I'm going to say about that. It'll get awkward for me and you. Husbands. Your wife is your standard of beauty, period. Remember, she said, don't look at me. Don't look at me because I'm not that good to look at. And then he says, no, 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 you're beautiful. Your eyes are beautiful. And she's going, yeah, but I got a farmer's tan. He's like, I don't care about your farmer's tan. You are beautiful. Your girl is your standard of beauty, period. So if your girl's tall, then you're into tall. If your girl's short, then you like short. If your girl's really thin, then you like really thin. If your girl's formally thin, then you really are into formally thin. All right, if your girl has curly hair today, you like curly hair today. And if tomorrow it goes straight, then you went to straight hair. And if the humidity hits it and it kind of goes in the middle, then that's what you really like, (laughs) period. See, in Genesis, when God created Adam, 
And, and, and it says, no, there was no help, helper suitable for him. And so God parades all the animals in front of Adam. And at first he was all creative. You know, he was like, he was like platypus and, and giraffe and hippopotamus. And then at the end he got bored. He was like, you know, cat, rat, gnat, bat. All right, let's go, go, go. And he finds, he's like, God, this ain't working for me. All right, this, there's nothing there suitable. And so then God puts Adam to sleep, takes the rib, makes Eve, and then wakes Adam up. And then Adam starts singing. And he names Eve Woe man, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Literally in Hebrew, that means mine. Think about this. He's naming the animals, and he's like aardvark, anteater, billy goat, sees a naked woman, his wife, and he goes, mine. I can say mine, that's mine, mine. <laughs> shotgun, he calls shotgun on Eve. Now, no choices, right? God didn't play bachelor. God didn't come in and go, well, here's what we're going to do, Adam. I've created seven different kind of women, all the colors of the rainbow, different color hairs, different attitudes, different aptitudes, different abilities, you know, and you're going to take them to different parts of, of the garden and lie to them and tell them, no, I love you best. No, I love you best. And then we're going to have a rose ceremony, and we're going to narrow it down to your favorite one and then banish everybody else to the, no. God said, here she is. And Adam said, mine. So you look at your wife. You look at your wife. Whether you're 23 or 83 or 103, it doesn't matter. That is your standard of beauty, period. And I hope, fellas, I hope you've never been dumb enough to make some kind of physical critique of your wife. All right, first of all, you ain't exactly the Tarzan you were in your wedding album either, okay? (laughs) But I hope that you are speaking life into her. And even when she says, oh, I don't look the way I used to, your answer is, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Your wife is the standard of beauty for you. And then look how she responds. You see, when she gets treated this way, she just naturally responds. And she says, behold, she's talking to her husband, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, our beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine." She continues to encourage him. She's just laying on the respect. She is saying, wow, our house is awesome. Do you know that, wives, when your husband is really trying to be serious about the mantle of leadership that he has in your home to provide and to protect, and then you are not appreciative of what he is trying to provide for you, you have, it, 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 like, it like is a knife into his soul. I mean, it's, it's about one of the worst things that you could ever, ever tell, tell him. And, and when you correct him in public, I know you think you're trying to help him. I know you are. But the way he hears that, or when he comes home from work and he's like, oh, I got a rough day because this, that, and the other is going on, and you begin to just tell him what he ought to do. Essentially, what you're telling him is, I'm, I'd be better at you if I had that job. You know what he really wants to know? He wants to know that you think he has what it takes, and he wants to know that you are on his team. And as soon as he knows those things, then more than anything else, then he wants all of your input. And so I'm telling you, a godly woman is a grateful woman, is a grateful woman. And she says, our house, she says, I love our house. You know, one time I was at, uh, Gretchen and I were having dinner with this couple, good couple, godly couple, they love Jesus, their kids love Jesus. And, um, and, and they're a rich couple too. God had a big old house, they had a big old house, you know. And, um, and we go over and we eat dinner and everything's going great. And then we're putting the dishes away and, and they have a leaky faucet. And I just said something, oh, I see you got a leaky faucet. And then immediately the wife said, oh, that's because he didn't know how to fix anything. Oh, 
right? We get in the car, and Gretchen goes, that was bad, wasn't it? I go, oh, it was terrible. And she said, well, you know how to fix a leaky faucet. And I'm like, yeah, but the only reason is because I couldn't afford a plumber growing up. So that was why. It's not great. It's not like I'm super handy. This guy, he could buy the plumbing company to just live in his basement. And whenever there's a leaky faucet, he could just call him, hey, y'all, come fix some stuff for me. And so I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you don't even realize how often you do it. The best thing Gretchen's ever told me in our entire marriage, one day she comes home from the gym, I'm sitting on the couch with the kids, just hanging out. She walks in, she takes this deep breath, she looks right at me and she just goes, thank you for my life. And what she's saying is that our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our raptors are pine. She's saying, I think you have what it takes to be who God created you to be. She goes on to say, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. In other words, a godly woman is confident. She's humble, but she's confident. She's not defined by who this world tells her that she is to be, but she's defined by who she is in Christ. Listen, girls, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are a daughter of the king of glory. You are so valuable, and you should be treated as valuable. You were knit together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. His works are wonderful. I want you to know that full well that you could confidently walk in the truth that you are a daughter of the king, that, that Christ loved you so much. He thought you were so important that he died on a cross to purchase you. And you're valuable, therefore you should be treated as valuable. And there's nothing more attractive than a girl that is confident in who she is in Christ. Verse two, she says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. This is not begrudging submission, but she, is, she delights to sit in the shade of her husband. That She delights to sit in the shade of her husband. Listen, wives, too many Christian wives are committed to the marriage. I don't want you to be committed to the marriage. I want you to be devoted to your husband. See the difference? Because you can get another marriage but there's only one him. And the Bible talks about the two of you becoming one. And when you begin to delight to sit in his shade, I'm telling you what's gonna happen is you're gonna stir in him. You can unleash in him what God has called and created him to be. You see, not, there's not a man in here that graduated emotionally from about the eighth grade, all right? That's why if you get a few of us together, we end up wrestling or catching something on fire. It's just what happens, all right? We're just, we're just overgrown boys. And then when you came along, I'm telling you, every man in here puffed up and tried to do better and just win you over. That's just how we are. And when you delight to sit in our shade, when you begin to say, I think you have what it takes, and you delight to sit there, then you can unleash in us what God has created us to be. Verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. That she is responsive to him. I told you last week that when she says, give me some raisins, that was like, Hebrews would have laughed like crazy, all right? Because raisins were like a, a Hebrew aphrodisiac. They had a lot of seeds in them, and the women thought, if I eat all these seeds, they'll get in me, and I can have a lot of babies. And so this man has been pursuing her and valuing her and, and promoting her with his words. And then he takes her to the banqueting hall and his banner over her was love. And she says, give me some raisins. All right, a godly woman is responsive. Look, it ain't offense and defense. It's, that means when he reaches out and he squeezes your hand and you squeeze back, we're gonna do a whole week after they get married on the honeymoon, all right? You don't wanna miss that one either. 
So she says, give me some raisins, praise the Lord. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love, verse 6. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So they're out at the banqueting hall. The pan rover hurt his love. They are wrapped up in this intimate embrace, and everything is leading towards physical sexual intimacy. Look, if you have those desires, you're not weird. That's how God made you, okay? Praise the Lord. We're going to spend some time talking about that in a couple of weeks. But what, God, what the man here says is, but you are worth waiting for. You are worth waiting for. Look, a godly woman understands that she is worth the wait. You are worth being pursued. You are valuable. Therefore, you should be treated as valuable. And nobody gets to touch you except a man that has made a covenant and a commitment till death do us part. That your body is not the appetizer. It's the dessert. And when you get that thing out of order, here's the problem. Is that you'll chase intimacy away like a gazelle or a doe of the field. You can't roughhouse a doe. You can't go chasing after a doe. It'll just take off and it'll be gone. And what you think is just physical early on before you get married and say, hey, we're just going to hop into bed together. What you do is you chase the intimacy out of the field of your life. And it'll be almost impossible to regain that. And so a man that knows how to love a godly woman says, you're worth the wait. 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient. It's not a feeling. It's patient. And if a man's not being patient with you, then guess what? He's not loving you. I don't care what he feels like in here. He's not loving you because you are a daughter of the king of glory. And not just any bum that takes you to the movies gets to touch you. That you are worth the wait. You are so, so, so valuable. Because what begins to happen is if you get physical too early, then that man does not learn how to take care of your heart. And the only thing that's going to sustain you for 50 or 60 years of a good and godly marriage is not the physical. It's not the physical. Ask any married people in here, all right? It's not. And I know some of you singles have it, like you have this thing in your mind. (laughs) All right? It's not everything you think. But it's going to be the mingling of the souls. That's the Hebrew word for sex. It's called dode, the mingling of the souls. And what you've got to make sure you do is learn to take care of one another's heart. And then sex becomes the dessert and not the appetizer. And so, girls, I just need you to hear this, that you, you are worth waiting for. Because think about this. If the physical stuff was the secret to the greatest marriages in the country, then who would have the greatest marriages? Hollywood, wouldn't it? If it had to do with good-looking people having great sex, then wouldn't Hollywood be the epicenter of all that is great marriage and family life? What a joke. What a joke. You see, I don't care how hot the actress is, almost every Hollywood actress has had some man look at her and go, hmm, I'm done. Off with you. I need to find another one. And they would trade everything that they've been through to have what I have. 14 years of intimacy, where I love my wife more today than I did 14 years ago, and I didn't know how that was possible. And we're not perfect, we're not perfect, but we've been trying to do it God's way. Verse eight, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. He's gonna show up and take her on a date. Next week, we're talking about how to date. So you should bring a date to church next week. Verse 10, 
My beloved speaks to me and says, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land, the fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. Now listen to this, verse 14. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. A godly woman is to be handled with care. That a man worthy of going out with you understands how to handle you with care. He's not, he doesn't go diving into the clefts of the rock, grab the dove. It doesn't work like that. But he creates an environment where he is drawing her out. He talks about her voice. He talks about her face. That he treats her as valuable. Listen, girls, you get to determine how you're treated. And some of you are dating some guys, and they treat their golf clubs better than you. They really do. They have a special place for them. They clean them up every time they use them. They only use their golf clubs for their intended purpose. They don't hit rocks with them or try to weed eat. And they're not even good at golf. And they treat the silly game better than they treat you. If that's the case, girls, trust Jesus. It's fourth and longest time to punt and find a good godly man that knows how to value you because you are valuable. You see, a godly man just draws a godly woman out. He doesn't push her. He doesn't pull her. But he just draws her out. Verse 15, catch for us the foxes, or catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards of our vineyard are in blossom. We're going to talk a whole week on how to fight. There's, there's one chapter in Song of Solomon on the honeymoon. There's two chapters on how to fight. All the married people said amen. Verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. Here's the point. Here's the point. Girls, I hope you get this. In Proverbs chapter 31, it just talks about what a godly, a godly woman looks like. Proverbs 31, 30 says this, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Charm is deceitful and, and, deceitful and beauty is vain. That, in other words, if you try to build your identity from the outside in, it just won't last. That no matter how beautiful you are right now, that's going to change. No matter how charming you can be on your best day, that, that's not the core of who you are. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So at the Church of 1122, we are hoping and praying and trying to create the kind of environment where there are a lot of godly women here at the church. Look, the husband is the head of your home, yes. Jesus is the head of our church, amen. Godly women, you are the backbone of your home and this church. And you are to be praised. That means you are worthy for us to value and to honor and to respect. And you are worth it. Because Christ died for you. Because God designed you that way. And as the leader of this place, I want to create the kind of environment where you are honored and you are valued and that we set the standard for husbands. This is how you treat your wife. And we set, set the standard for, for single guys that are dating that you play like you practice. So we're going to practice honoring and valuing and pursuing. Why? Because the Bible says that they are, they are worthy to be praised. And we live in a culture that treats you like a commodity that uses you up, and when they're done, they move on to the next one. It's a cultural problem. It's a sin problem. Girls, you determine how people treat you. You determine how people treat you. And you are to be treated 
with value and honor and respect. And I know anytime we talk about this, probably some of the deepest sources of pain in your life is because some immature boy in a man's body devalued you and disrespected you and dishonored you. I can't fix it. God can save it. God can put you back together, but we can walk with you through it. The church of 1122 is going to be a place where women are valued and honored and respected because of who you are in Christ Jesus. In your notes, in your notes, I I just wrote some words to the women of our church. I would like everybody just to bow your head, and I just want to say these as a prayer over you as we close. Women of the church of 1122, you will no longer be defined by what this world says you are to be. May you walk in a humble confidence that comes only by finding your identity in Christ. You are valuable, therefore you should be treated as valuable. You are precious, therefore you should be honored. You are worth waiting for and you are worth pursuing. And in this world, the only thing that you need to be concerned about is being the woman that God created you to be. That's exactly what we all need you to be. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for the women of the church of 1122. God, I thank you for every guest that's here too. Lord, I pray. God, that your word will not go out in vain. Lord, I pray that all of the words that I spoke that might be confusing or get in the way, God, that they would be forgotten and that the word of God will land on fertile soil. And Holy Spirit, you would do what you do. Holy Spirit, would you be a comforter in this place? God, I know that there are women in this place that, are, that have been abandoned and broken and abused. And God, I pray that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, God, you would let them know in a tangible way this moment that they are so valuable. They are so precious. They are to be honored. God, I pray that you would just do work in this place. And God, I pray that this church, through the leadership of this church and through the men of this church, that this would be a place, the Church of 1122, would be an environment where every woman, every little girl, every teenager, every single 20 or 30 or 40-something, every widow and everybody in between, every single age here would be honored respected and valued because you sent your only begotten son to purchase to purchase them therefore they are to be valued holy spirit i pray that you would mend broken hearts god i pray that you would get people on paths of recovery and restoration where there has been damage and heartache and we pray all of this in the good strong name of jesus christ our lord Hey, if you would please stand. We respond every week. We're going to respond just a little bit differently. I'm going to ask all the, um, all the women on staff of our church to come forward. If you're on staff and you're a woman, would you please come forward? Also, any female deacons that are in this service, I'd ask that you come forward. Or any wives of the elders, would you come forward? Um, women of the Church of 1122, if you need a godly woman to pray over you, here is a, uh, a line of godly women here in our church. The altars are open to anybody, men or women, if you want to come down, absolutely. But um, if you need a godly woman to pray over you, then I would invite you to come. Let us respond.